what I've what we've talked about in recombinant DNA so far is how to get a piece of DNA from somewhere and make a whole lot of copies of it. So instead of working with uh, ex DNA extracted from my cells, which there's three billion different base pairs of sequence, we can find a little stretch of DNA, but simply being able to clone it, it was, it was a long way from being able to get a lot of a fragment of DNA to being able to figure out what that sequence is. That sequence of that gene is actually from this xeroderma, the gene in, that's broken in the xeroderma pigmentosum variant uh, patient who um, missing one of these translesion DNA polymerases that can copy over a thymine-thymine-thymine-primidine dimer that's induced by UV light. So the reason they have that problem with their skin after sunlight is because they're missing a polymerase that can't copy over accurately over this very, this very common lesion caused by DNA damage. But how do you get from having a piece of DNA to having, having the, the sequence? So the first thing that people learn to do, and you still do this all the time in any molecular biology lab, we're sort of switching now to engineering, if you'll, as you'll see. We're taking, you're going to see in the next things I'm going to say, uh, proteins that were, I, I talked to you about because of their biological roles, DNA polymerases, ligases, we learned what they do, and now you're going to see them used in, in uh, manipulative ways, and restriction enzymes, they have a biological purpose too, they weren't put on earth for me to cut up <laughs> things into fragments and clone, they were there to give the, the bacteria some kind of sort of primitive, primitive immune system. But the first uh, thing that you often have to do when you have, let's say, a plasmid that in, into which we've inserted a fragment, and let's say it was the kind of cloning that we described the other day where I had cut the vector with an EcoR1 site and uh, the other DNA with an EcoR1 site. So these, the junction uh, between the inserted fragment and the, and the cut vector has recreated two EcoR1 sites now. And if I cut with EcoR1, I'll just undo what I did in the cloning, and we should get the vector DNA and the insert DNA back again. So uh, th this is, I think, uh, for this vector to give us a, an orientation, I'm going to imagine that it has one more uh, restriction site. This one's called SAL1. Uh, it just recognizes a different sequence. So let's take this, if I take the plasma DNA and cut with EcoR1, I'm just reversing the cloning. So what I should get is the vector DNA and the insert that I generated in the first place, but I have to detect them somehow. I can't. Unfortunately, they don't just look in the test tube like that. So the, what people do is they use a very simple uh, principle. It's called gel electrophoresis. And the idea is you just make a gel of something. In this, in this particular case, it's just made of, of agar, which is, is uh, agarose. These are polysaccharide products, 
often derived from seaweed or something like that. They have the property that if you, if you warm them up, they, they're a liquid, and then if you let them cool down, they're a, a gel. You've run into jello, it has that property. That's actually with, made of a protein rather than a carbohydrate, but it's that kind of principle. So it's very easy to, to pour a, something and then let it solidify. Now you've got a slab. And it's just a network of, of uh, things that interact. And the principle of the thing is if you're, you're a very big, so you have to get the molecules to move. Well, that's pretty easy with nucleic acids because they're charged. They have all those phosphates, they've got a lot of negative charge. So if you apply an electric field, they'll move. And the principle of the thing is if you're big, it takes, it's harder to wiggle through this network than if you're small. Or you can think of a big fat person trying to go through a forest with a lot of trees and a little skinny one. And if we let him have a race, eventually the skinny one will emerge quickly, you know, from the forest first. And so if we had a set of markers down the side where this is big and this is small and we take this piece of DNA, we're going to get two fragments. This, the bigger one, be the vector and the smaller one would be an insert. So from that, we could say, oh, well, we, what we must, if I didn't know what I started with, I could say what, what must be in that plasmid is the vector, and I can run it all by itself and see it's exactly the same size. And I got an insert of this particular size. But now, can I learn anything more about that just using restriction enzymes? Well, let's say I now take the same... Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do it over here. So let's cut this time with EcoR1 plus another restriction enzyme. They all have these weird names, BAMH1. And let's see what happens. Well, suppose I do that and I get something like this. Well, it looks like the vector wasn't cut at all. That still seems to be the same, but it looks as though the insert got cut into two pieces. Since it was linear, it must have one BAMH, one site in it. And so this molecule that I've cloned could look, be one of two kinds of ways. It could be like, like this. Well, let's say this is the insert. Here's the EQR1. I'll use this SAL1 to orient us. So the BAM site could either be close over here, could be over on the on the other side. That makes sense? Logic is pretty simple. How could I tell which of those is correct? Just doing the kind of stuff I'm doing. Yeah? 
Beautiful, beautiful. So if we cut with with the sal H one, excuse me, sal one plus the mam H one. In one case, we'll get a one. We get a fragment like that. In the other case, get a fragment like that. That should feel uneasily familiar to you. It, it should feel just like what we were doing when we did that phage cross and we had some, some genes that were lined up and we were trying to figure, was it the orientation this way or was it the orientation? That was exactly the same principle. And so this is usually, uh, in the lab, you'd call this restriction mapping or making a restriction map. And it enabled people to manipulate fragments of DNA and make inferences about their orientation and, and other features before we could actually even sequence, uh, sequence DNA. And it's just part of a routine sort of stuff you do in a lab. The equipment is discerningly simple. They look something, it looks something like that. Usually you put in some colored dye so you can see that the, the things are um, moving down the, down the gel. And the way you visualize the DNA is you add a, a molecule, the name of it doesn't particularly matter, it's called ethidium bromide, but its property is it doesn't fluoresce when it's just in solution, but if it, it's a flat molecule and it can intercalate in between the base pairs in DNA. So you have all those stacked base pairs going down a helix, and this molecule is flat and it likes to slip inside, and now it's in a much more hydrophobic environment, it's hidden from the water, becomes fluorescent. And so DNA that soaked up this dye then will fluoresce if you put a UV light on it. So if I take the gel out of there after I've run it and soak it in this dye and then shine a little handheld UV light on it, it would look something like that if I photographed it. And so the, you'd end up with those patterns that look exactly like that. Here's another, oops, I guess I took the other one out. But you can, of course, depending on how complicated it is, you could have a lot of different fragments. Okay, so the next, big thing that had to happen in us, for us to really move to where we are in today's molecular biology was somehow DNA had to be sequenced. And as I say, when I was a, an undergrad or even when I was starting, just about to start, well, I was a postdoc anyway, it just again seemed like how would you ever do it because every nucleotide was, was joined by a phosphodiester bond. The only difference was the was the base that was there. It seemed very, very difficult. They're hard to imagine you would ever be able to sort out the sequence of a billion base pairs. Of course, once you get a, you could clone, now you've got maybe a fragment of DNA that's a couple of hundred new base pairs long, and at least the problem becomes smaller. Maybe you could work it out. Now, there were, there were a couple of different ways of doing it. One was by Wally Gilbert, who's up at Harvard, who got part of a, half the Nobel Prize for doing this. The other principle, the other one, the one that's really proved to be generally, most generally useful is Fred Sanger from England, uh, and he, he and Wally shared the Nobel Prize for discovering sequencing. And the, the principle was disarmingly simple. I, I, I think it's one of these great ideas that you look back at afterwards and you think, I could have thought of that. You guys already know everything you need 
to invent how to sequence DNA. I've told you all the stuff already, but I don't, nobody's come down to tell me yet that you've got it, and I didn't think of it. So here was the principle. What we've, talk, we've talked about, if we take a DNA polymerase, plus the four deoxynucleotide triphosphates, remember deoxy, uh, adenosine, uh, deoxyribonucleotide, uh, the adenosine triphosphate, and so on, the, the four different ones, and we take a primer, and there's a three prime hydroxyl right there, and the, so this is, the other strand is going in the opposite uh, direction, that if we add that, I think you all know what's, what's going to happen, we're going to get an extension to the other end. And what happens every time we add a nucleotide is that three prime uh, hydroxyl attacks the phosphate of the triphosphate. We lose P two of the phosphates, it's called pyrophosphate, and we've created a new five to three prime linkage. That gives us a new three prime hydroxyl and we repeat the process, right? That's what we talked about. So what would happen? Let's spike in a little Now, let me do this, a little deoxy-TTP. Um, so this is di-deoxy. Well, what would we mean by that? Well, if this, remember where the deoxy came from, the ribose has, at the two prime position, has a hydrogen instead of a hydroxyl, and And at the three prime position, it has a hydroxyl. If we made a dideoxy, what we do is we'd make that. Now, what could that nucleotide do? Well, as long as the polymerase thought it was useful, it, would, it could use this end, it would have its triphosphate up here. So somebody else's. 3 prime OH could come down and form a bond to here, and we'd lose this. So it could get incorporated, but once it was incorporated, that chain is finished. It can't be elongated anymore. So let's think what would happen if, if we had, let me stretch this out a little bit here, and let's imagine we had a few. A's in this, in this sequence. So we're just going to spike in a bit. So most of the things will not see a dideoxy. So this primer will put a, we'll put a, um, okay, so we'll, we'll try elongating this. So when we get to this point, this point, many of them will put in an ordinary A, but a few will put in a dideoxy. And those will finish at that point, they can't go any farther. The rest of them keep going. They add various nucleotides. When we get to the next A, 
Most of them will put in a, a good uh, T, but the ones that put in the dideoxy will stop and they will generate a fragment that looks like that. Okay? You get the idea? We do this again. Out of this reaction, we're going to get a set of fragments, and each one terminates where there was an A up there. Now, in the, the newer emulation of this thing, we have a T, and the trick is to put a dye that you can attach to this nucleotide so it has a particular color. So if, suppose we had something that was yellow, then this particular set of fragments would be yellow, And maybe you can begin to see what would happen now. If we did the same game three more times, each time using a different deoxy, next time maybe we'll use dideoxy A, and we'll put a different color dye on it. Then every time, in this case, we'd come to a T in the template, it would stop, and we'd get a little fragment that stopped because it incorporated a dideoxy A, and those would be, let's say, green. So by the end of this, we would have all possible fragments if we mixed them all together and the, uh, the last nucleotide on, the, on each fragment would say who it was by its color. So if you were to then take this whole mixture of DNA fragments and you run them down a gel, in this case it's a different, it's a polyacrylamide gel because you have smaller, trying to get things to go by smaller fragments, you could sort of see what would happen. The, the, the big ones would be at the top, the small ones would be at the bottom, and you'd see each band would have a different color depending on the dideoxy that terminated its chain. So if you had a little scanner that just goes along, it can read this and it'll print out uh, something, and these are always slightly idealized, this is a real one. But this is the sort of stuff you'd get back if you sent a piece of DNA over to a sequencing center. They'd send this back as a, as a file or something. And you'd sit there. And it, it's very good these days. It used, the technology wasn't as good, but they can almost always now uh, get the sequence. Occasionally, if you get something like a run of Gs, it gets a little hard. But what they do is they'll, they'll sort of what they call sequencing both strands. You can see this way we're really only looking at the information from one strand. So if we took the other strand and we did the same thing, then we should get the complementary um, piece of information. So what this DNA um, sequencing allows you to do then is to determine the exact sequence of nucleotides in some kind of piece. And much of the art from the rest of it then comes, how do you assemble all of those things together? In a case of a bacterium or something, it wasn't so bad because its DNA was small enough you could cut it into a bunch of sort of big fragments and then take each one of those and you were, the sorting problem was relatively simple. In the case of something like humans, it was really complicated because it was so much more DNA. And the other thing is higher organisms such as ourselves have a lot of repeated DNA. It's, it's just the same sequence and sometimes there's quite a bit of it a bunch of repeats, and so if you see that, 
at the end of your thing, you don't really quite know where you are in the genome. So a lot of other tricks had to be brought into play, including knowledge of the human genetic map. And so you could get yourself anchored at various places because you knew on this partic particular piece of DNA, because it was associated with some gene, had to be here on the chromosome, and therefore things at least beside it were there on the chromosome. And there were a whole lot of tricks to putting it together, but the, the very basic principle of how we sequence DNA has as its heart the same process that I was talking to you about as when we were doing uh, DNA replication, except in this case it's, it's just um, used in a in a very clever way. And that was an amazing idea. You know, got a Nobel Prize, and you've been sitting here for the last month with all the knowledge to do it. I keep emphasizing that we've got to have that three prime hydroxyl. But it's, some of the great ideas often are, when you look back, you could see it was the hurdle was kind of small. And they didn't have, even have to do this with, with dyes at the beginning. In fact, that was a later innovation. The key thing was just the dye deoxys stopping it in, in each place. I was lucky enough to live through some of this, the development of this technology. Okay, so um, I've got one more really big thing to tell you, which again was extraordinarily uh, clever, but extraordinarily simple once you heard about it. And it gave, it was one more technological advance. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a big insight into biology in and of itself, but it was a technology that opened up uh, just incredible experimental possibilities. And it's something known as the polymerase chain reaction. And this allows, in principle, someone like me to go in to grab a single cell from you, take its DNA, and get a copy of any gene I want from your genome. And I can look and see whether you have any mutations in that genome or if there are different polymorphic alleles in the population, which one you got from your mom or which one you got from your dad. So you take from a single DNA molecule, I can make as much as I want. And this is just like DNA sequencing. You guys already know everything you need to know to invent this technique as well. It has very much that same property. It's another one of these very brilliant sort of insights that was actually, you just had to put things in the right place. So let me explain the principle. So suppose that I would like to know, there's a, a gene that I'm, uh, I know there's a family history something and I would like to know did I happen to get the allele that carries that or did I get the one that didn't so in principle what I'd like to do would be to, to take that get hold of um, that particular piece of DNA for that gene from my own cells but all I'm starting with is my entire DNA well I could clone it I could make a recombinant library I could do everything else but there's this other simple way one way this involves, what it involves taking, is since I know the sequence of the genome now, 
I know that you know, almost everything's going to be the same. There'll be little differences in between individuals. I'll make a little primer that corresponds to the sequence that one end of the DNA, and uh, one end of the gene, and another primer that corresponds to the DNA at the other end of the gene, or whatever fragment I want to uh, use. And that's all I have to do in terms of getting anything made. Now the rest, we're just going to play games with DNA, DNA polymerase, and nucleoside triphosphates. Just all the stuff I dragged you through talking about DNA replication. So here's, here's the idea. So let's, let's take a, here's, here's my DNA, let's say, or a part of it. And I, if I could actually see the sequence, I would know, let's say, the gene I'm interested in is in here. So what I would do is make a little primer. It just has to be enough to confer specificity for something with humans. If I make something probably 30 nucleotides long, that's enough. It'll only bind one place in the DNA. And I make one, let's say, for the, op for the opposite strand over here. So remember, this is five prime, three prime, five prime to, to three prime. So the principle is we'll heat to 95 degrees centigrade and we'll denature the DNA. And we'll add an excess of the two primers. And let's say we'll cool to 55 degrees centigrade or something. We'll cool it down enough so that we can get the primers on, but we're not going to go all the way and let all the strands find their way back. We'll add a DNA polymerase plus four deoxynucleoside triphosphates. Well, what'll happen? Well, here's one of the strands. And we'll prime it here, let's say. So it'll, it'll copy down here and go as far as it can go. And the other one, whatever it was, starts here. And it's gonna go down all that way. Let's just repeat the whole process now, okay? What'll happen? Now when we pull them apart, we ought to have four strands. We'll have the original ones here. And when I repeat the process, the same thing's gonna happen again. This one will go here and it'll, and it'll copy out. This one will go here and we'll copy out. But what about this guy? So this one, this one becomes this one here. So the primer that it does will copy it, and it can't go any further. I've just generated a piece that's exactly what I wanted. And the same deal down here, as long as I don't get lost. Uh, which one did I do? So. Um, 
So we've got this guy here, so it starts there. And when, so this one becomes this one, and we'll prime it here. And it, it'll go along, and it'll stop. So there's the complementary strand to the one here. And if you, I think this is sort of like doing a math problem. You can't just look at it and say, well, maybe a few, you can, we'll get it. But there's nothing like sitting down with a pencil and paper and take yourself through several cycles. What you won't believe is how quickly you get to get being nothing but, almost nothing, but the sequence that you're, that you're trying, to, trying to amplify. And so this, this again is what's had an, an astonishing effect. This is why you hear about uh, DNA testing all the time in forensics, because you can take a tiny bit of DNA from saliva or semen or blood or whatever they might find on a, on a crime scene, and then they can amplify little pieces and they compare. And there's a trick they use in... in um, in forensics, and that is that there are sequences within the uh, human genome where there are little variable repeats, like GT, 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 GT. And I might have 14 of them in one of my chromosomes. The one I got from my mom might have 40. You might have 24 and, and something else, and so on. So if you were to do PCR around that little, that little region that was known to be variable, if you had 14 repeats, you'd get a shorter fragment. And if you had 40 repeats, you'd get a longer fragment. So I'll come back to that in a sec. So if you were to, for example, take something with a, a short repeat, a long repeat and a short peak, and do this kind of thing, we get two fragments, say one from the maternal, one from the paternal. And if you do this with several such sites around the genome, Pretty soon you run into these situations where the odds of a particular combination of a long one at this site, a short one at this site, and so on, become statistically improbable that it's anyone other than yourself. So in a crime scene, if they did this, they, for example, might have three individuals that they were thinking was possible, and they generate patterns like this, say, using three different loci like this, and then have the forensic sample, and it was pretty evident who didn't do it and who at least remains a suspect. This probably wouldn't prove it. The very last thing, just to close this off, is when people developed this PCR technique, you had to sit there with your pipette, because every time you raised it to 90 degrees to the nature of the DNA, you killed your enzyme. So you cooled it down to 55, you squirted in new DNA polymerase, and then someone finally said, another brilliant idea, what if the, I had a thermoresistant polymerase? Well, where would I find those? Well, oops, sorry, go back here. Um, Penny was talking to you about those vents where the, it's really, really hot, and those black smokers and everything. So maybe you got a bacterium from there, it would have a temperature-resistant polymerase. So here you are from the New England BioCatalog, vent exo-minus DNA polymerase, deep vent, DNA polymerase, people went, grabbed those bacteria from there, grabbed the DNA polymerase gene, and now the DNA polymerase just sits there. It just laughs when you bring it up to 90 degrees, and when you cool it back down and give it a substrate again, it'll do its thing. And so this whole thing can be done automatic, and you don't have to sit there and pipette something in at the end of every run. Another little cute 
sort of engineering trick that combined ecology together with biology. Okay, see you on Friday. <laughs>